a term in uh, education called scaffolding, right? Where, where you want to work with the student you're trying to teach hands-on enough to get them to the point where they can work comfortably until they reach another point where they need help again. And then you build them up and you prepare them for the next phase and you just keep doing that. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro, but like I always say, it's never about me. Today, I've brought a really cool guest outside of the Brain Trust, met on the Twitter.coms, as it's called. I've brought to you today a fiction writer, game designer, audio engineer, has been on the 15 Minutes of Fave podcast. I would like to welcome to the show Tracy Barnett. Uh, that crowd noise does it for me every time. It's really good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Tip your waitress. Try the veal. <laughs> the classic. Uh, thank you for being here, Tracy. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, I, this is uh, a show I really enjoy listening to, and I'm very pleased to be on it. <sighs> My heart swells. Um, as always, including plugs and everything like that. Would you mm-hmm. give just a brief introduction of who you are to people who may not be aware of who you are? Sure. My name is Tracy Barnett. I am, as Jeremy noted, a writer, game designer, podcaster, audio engineer. I do layout. I, I have worked very, very diligently to kind of become a, a person of all trades, and it is now uh, paying off. It's it's kind of nice. So I design games uh, nominally under the other dev productions uh, because my handle everywhere online is the other Tracy. No, not that Tracy, not that one, the other one. Uh, I, I know a couple of other Tracys in real life, and they're absolutely very jealous of my handle. It makes me very happy. <laughs> so, yeah, I have uh, a bunch of small games that I publish on Itch and Drive RPG. I have done some larger projects. I've freelanced for a bunch of different companies. I have done actual play podcasts. I have my own podcast, 15 Minutes of Fave, as you noted. And... Yeah, I'm never doing one thing at a time, so there's always a lot of irons and a lot of fires, and I am working now to try and get all of that streamlined, and I think I've overcome a big hurdle in that uh, recently, so all the things that I I do can point toward revenue for me to live my life, because that's what we have to do right now. As Mm -hmm. you and past guests have noted, uh, we all live under the thumb of capitalism, and... (laughs) I have made it part of my job to figure out how to get good at that without selling my soul away. Yeah, yeah. Play, uh, hate the game, not the player, for sure. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, in addition, as icebreakers go on the show, mm-hmm. why don't you, if you can, sort of give us a game design journey, if you will? Because it sounds like you've been doing this for a while. You've been attached to the industry for uh, a minute here. And what was maybe like the first role-playing game that really got you into the hobby and what was maybe the first game that said that told you you could be a game designer sure so like so many people i started with dungeons and dragons back in the day i had uh cousins that had the 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 red box 
um, from, you know, 1987, whatever iteration of basic D&D that was. I got it. I had that in the expert box. I never really played. Um, I was into the Baldur's Gate video game uh, not Mm -hmm. too long after it came out in, you know, the late 90s. And in college, I had some coworkers who knew I was into that game and were like, hey, we're playing D&D 3rd Edition when it launches, because this was before 3rd Edition had officially come out. Mm. Would you like to play with us? And so my first actual foray into playing was was D&D 3rd Edition. And uh, through that process of playing that game, I had to eventually decide that I want to play D&D or Magic more, uh, because I was spending too much money on both. And <laughs> D&D won out. I think there were only four or five books that I never owned for 3.5. And then I ran my first game with 4th Edition, which uh, was a joy to, to learn. How, I mean, it was a game that actually taught you how to run an mm-hmm. RPG, which was great. Uh, I was bad at the tactical part of it because it was six minds versus my one. Yeah, yeah. And right around that time, I was listening to uh, a now defunct podcast called The Gamer's Haven, and they were doing actual play. Now, it was not edited. These were just, they put an Olympus voice recorder down in the middle of their game table, and they would just record their session audio and post it up. So it was like four and a half, six hour long sessions just raw Mm -hmm. but you got to know who those people were and when they did an in-person convention in kansas city for the first time i drove out for that in 2009 i think was the first public one maybe 10 and that's where i learned about games that were not DD. so savage worlds was my first introduction and over the next few years, I was tinkering with system or with setting stuff. I didn't consider myself a systems person. And then I was actually driving back from a trip to visit all of my friends out there in Kansas City for New Year's. And there was a joke on Twitter about having ranks in lank, like it's a D&D skill because I'm six foot five, long and lanky. And I started rhyming things and I realized, because I was also in a master's program to get my teaching degree, I realized I was describing high schoolers, ranks and lank, tank, bank, jank, clank, right? They all rhymed. And that was the genesis of my first game, School Days. So I had been on Twitter for a while. I'd gotten to know people in the D&D community, specifically when 5e was announced at uh, DDXP in 2012. I was the only person live tweeting the announcements. So my uh, follower count skyrocketed. And like three months later, I ran my first Kickstarter for School Days, uh, which had a $3,000 goal and funded at like six and change, I think. And that was in 2012. So I have been doing this for the better part of 10 years now. And I have run... Uh, let's see. Quick count. Created projects. View all. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten Kickstarters of my own and have consulted on five others, six others, mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. Um, so like Kickstarter has made my career what it is because... Mm-hmm. It's how I learned how to do all of this. Um, now I've, I've changed my focus a lot. Like my first, uh, my first projects were were bigger games, right? And I even at one point in time uh, 
funded to publish somebody else's game. And I've realized since what I'm good at and what I'm bad at, and I have switched my focus, uh, I now do a lot of my own everything. Like if I write a small game, I write it and revise it and lay it out and do all the graphic design and publish it. So I don't need Kickstarter for that kind of thing, right? I do Kickstarters for games that where I, where I either need a chunk of money, right, to, to fulfill part of the project, or there's going to be a physical component because it sh- doesn't really have a great way to do physical stuff. Yeah. So at this point in time on my itch page... I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, uh, 25, 26 published titles. Nice. Yeah. Um, and that's the bulk of those have come in the last three years mm-hmm. or so. Because I've learned how to take the stuff that's in my head and the little ideas that I'm like, okay, what about a game like this? And I can start writing it and mechanics just start popping onto the page. And if I realize it's a dead end idea, I just shelve it or I make a whole game and Mm -hmm. just write it and lay it out and off we go. Um, if it's a larger project, because I've got a, a few of those in the works, I am now not under any kind of like deadline pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working on three larger games sort of all at the same time right now. And I'm just writing them as I write them. I'm setting up some artificial deadlines for myself, you know, if I, if I need to for some of them to get work done. But you know, it's all self-imposed stuff. There's no real time frame on getting this done because I don't need the big projects to survive or to validate myself any longer. I just work on things that I want to work on and I found ways to focus in on the things that are potentially going to be more successful financially and make things that I want to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were... Um we were talking about this slightly with Tyler Crumrine and Adam Bell. And we were also talking about this on the Colin show, which if you're not listening to the Colin show, listen to the Colin show, Adam E. Bell on Twitch. But um, we had a question about how to decide what to make when it comes to making a game. Like, do you follow your creative passion within yourself or do you some do something more of the business route in terms of like, what are people latching on to and creating? And so I find that really interesting to I don't know I don't know if too many guests have said this before I think Aaron Lim said something this effect as well similar to like you have a bunch of projects that you're working on all one time Adam mm-hmm. Adam Bell's like this too and you just sort of work on what you feel you have the the juice for right mm-hmm. and um, I I love that I love presenting that there's not like a, the maybe assumed way is that you have one game you work on it all the way through and then you move on to your next project. But I think for me, I don't think that's how the human brain works. I think the human brain's very like firing off in different directions all the time. When you're sleeping, you're thinking about your competitive fighter. When you're awake, you're thinking about your uh, D and D hack. And when you're in the middle of your lunch break, you're thinking about how to make two people kiss in a game and have that Mm -hmm. feel good. Right. And, um, I, I love that you've presented that. Yeah, it. I have 
sometimes wistfully wondered what it would be like to really be able to give one game a lot of focus. Mm -hmm. But I have always been a first draft is final draft kind of person. It's Mm -hmm. taken a lot for me to be comfortable with someone else editing my work or even rereading it myself and going, yeah, no, I need to change this. This isn't, this isn't right. And it's a, a skill set that I've had to put a lot of effort in to develop. But even still, there's a, a point in time where either by dint of lack of focus or because I am, I've hit the, the sort of notes I want to hit, I go, yeah, this thing's done. The game's done. It's what I want it to be. Mm out we go, right? It's going to go into the world. Mm -hmm. And that's usually smaller games, you know, that are, that I handle that way. The, the larger ones, I like to have ways to play test them. I like to have ways that other people can interact with them. But a lot of my larger games are all based on fate, either core or accelerated. I'm not, I'm doing something with condensed now. Mm -hmm. And so I don't even play test those a ton because fate works like it's a whole functional system is solved. Yeah, it's a whole functional system. And so unless I'm making massive changes to it, which for for one game I am, I'm swapping out the fate dice for D6s and doing some other stuff like I need to play that and make sure that what I'm thinking actually will work. But I've gotten to the point, you know, almost a decade in now that even if something isn't a hundred percent functional, like I still want it to be out in the world more than I want to tinker with it and massage it into perfection. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if people engage with it and interact with it and go, Hey, this is kind of, this is kind of broken. Then I can go back when I have, I'm in a different headspace and fix it. It's PDFs. It's digital. I can change this stuff up whenever I need to. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I just put out small weird things that I want to put out and, you know, make sure that I'm satisfied with the effort of it. Uh, and sometimes things I put out, I just know are good. Like the game that I sent you prior to this, you were the dungeon. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, you, you would call it a fever dream game, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I had uh, a conversation at a meeting with Jeff Stormer, the uh, absolutely fantastic, phenomenal personage. Uh, that is Jeff Jeff Stormer. Hi, Jeff. And we were talking about marketing and he educated me on the idea of the marketing funnel. Um, the, the, the brief sort of, uh, description of this is you think of all of your efforts as getting people to go from people who know, who have, who have heard about your thing to people who know about your stuff, to people who have bought your stuff, to people who are fans of your stuff and start talking about it. And that spreads the word out more and everything just rolls into this, this funnel. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's not like necessarily just one Oh one, maybe it's a one Oh two like marketing concept, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's a whole thing. So we were talking about this. We had this meeting, my brain was kind of on fire and the next day I needed to find an allegory to process this and get some idea of what it was. So I wrote a tweet thread about you being the dungeon in a marketing sense, like your call stretching, stretching out to the, to the lands and everyone, you know, coming and exploring and, uh, you know, engaging with you and leaving forever changed 
by the experience, like a real gritty, grim, dark, old school dungeon crawl type experience. Um, mm-hmm. I've recently started bookmarking my good threads. So there's that thread if you want to check it out. Um, and I realized as I was writing this thread that it would also make a damn good game. So <laughs> I took the marketing idea that came from the marketing meeting with Jeff and I turned it into a game where you sit down as a solo player and you answer questions, you draw from a tarot deck to identify which adventurers are coming into your dungeon. You figure out what random events happen to them in the nightmare hellscape that is the inside of you. And you uh, roll a die to figure out how many survive. Mm. And then you do it all again. And at the start of this, you draw like a little map of your of your boundaries, your humble beginnings. And then every fallow season, I called it in between, um, when, uh, the time between adventurers, new evil, you know, comes into your walls. Cause like, if you think of really old school dungeons, like the caves of chaos and shit like that, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's no narrative sense as to why all of this stuff is in one place. It makes no sense. A lot of old dungeons, it's just like, yeah, there are goblins over here, and the ochre jelly lives down there. The ogres, uh, three flights up and take a right, but you don't know how are all these things coexisting. Mm -hmm. So this game, You Are the Dungeon, gives you a history for how this stuff happens, right? When the ogre decides to, to move in, you literally expand your borders, right? You make new space Mm -hmm. for the ogre because you are a semi-sentient, you know, dungeon being. Mm. And you can theoretically play as many rounds of this game as you want. It can go on forever. Um, There's a, a mega dungeon jam going on right now. And my intent is to sit down and play a bunch of rounds of my own game and make a mega dungeon from that. You know, because I'm 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 fast. Like I love I've got some old school D&D supplements and like Undermountain is one of those places. Mm -hmm. Just this the sprawling, multi-level, ridiculous complex. You could build an Undermountain with you or the dungeon. Yep. You know, it just takes enough enough passes to make enough levels and to, you know, explain why all these evil things are lurking inside of you. Uh, Wow. First of all, way to smooth transition into one of the games we'd be talking about today (laughs) basically covered in butter right now that's right Um, but first of all uh the concept like the concept of this being a way for you to apply the knowledge of this marketing funnel to cement it in your memory through game design is very very cool one of the things i've uh maybe touched on once or twice throughout the show there's this book called how to make smart notes super dry book but it's it the ultimate purpose of the book is to teach you a framework on how to record notes and then use those notes to create research articles and then you produce those articles but one of the biggest pieces that i take from that book is that you don't really understand something until you can make other people understand it through your creation right Mm -hmm. so what i love about you using game design i think there's been another guest uh, on the show that has also talked about using game design to sort of hammer out or understand an idea or feelings. I think Aaron Lim has done this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think, uh, Oh God, it'll come to me later. I'm sure I'll just yell in the middle of a sentence, but, um, 
<laughs> just this idea of using the medium in which you want to express yourself to understand concepts in the real world is a very cool way to make game design. And I think it creates very strong thematic as well. Like you are the dungeon has a very strong thematic for being 14 pages. I believe it is 14 or 16 pages. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, a lot of, a lot of that's tables. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it's tables. So like, uh, all the text is very evocative. You've captured that genre of the like that gritty dungeon. And one of the things that I like about You Are the Dungeon as well is that when I, I've played D&D and I've long since I haven't run a game for a while now. But one of the things that I've never thought about or I have thought about <laughs> in my sleep and then I wake up and I run a session, I totally forget it. But like, what was the dungeon originally? Like some of the questions that you ask, I think a lot of people forget when they're running that style of tavern um taverns like game i use taverns like like it's souls like (laughs) no it's a a you meet at the tavern style right Mm -hmm. you're you're gonna the adventuring party is gonna get together over some tankards of ale they're gonna pump themselves up they're gonna hear a rumor (laughs) about this decrepit place over the hill that is always there that is never going away and they're going to go solve that problem right Mm -hmm. and then they go in and it's like this um Darkest Dungeon. That was an yes. inspiration for this game, right? Um, uh, Darkest Dungeon, and then also uh, Dread Singles on Twitter at, mm-hmm. at Hottest Singles. Uh, mm-hmm. The not the way that Jordan, because uh, it's Jordan's personal account now, but it used to just be uh, hot singles in your area, mawing, you know, maws gaping wide, uh, teeth <laughs> covered in blood. You know, it was this very. A very particular way of writing and so I channeled like the feel of Darkest Dungeon and the tone of those old Dread Singles tweets mm-hmm. to put into this game like it, the prose is you, you call it evocative a fiction writer will call it purple because it is <laughs> I threw every adjective at the, yeah. at the at this thing that I possibly could and I deliberately used words in ways that they're we talked about this a little bit before we started recording words that they're not necessarily used in that way yeah. but give you a sense of something else behind it Right. Mm-hmm. When, when I say your blasphemous halls, what the fuck does it mean for a hall to be blasphemous? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, if you really want to break it down, yes, yeah, sure. There could be all kinds of iconography or, or, or whatnot, but just the mm-hmm. idea that this hall is blasphemous, like that evokes a sense. It's a, a an emotional pressure that it brings. And I want whoever's playing this game to read those sentences and to go into the story with that kind of emotional weight attached to it, mm-hmm. because you're going to end up creating a place that is grimly, beautifully tempting and oppressive and is absolutely going to mangle any adventurer foolish enough to walk into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it. It's just it's a really. And now the, all out, the only word I want to use is evocative, uh, <laughs> it, but it, that, that I there are times when I've just written games to get an idea out of my head. Oh, I think this is a cool thing. I've talked it over with a friend, whatever I'm going to write this game. And then this game is one of the few where I specifically wrote to accomplish a specific purpose. Mm. Like when you are playing rounds of this game, you are building a dungeon map. Mm -hmm. It's, it's an artifact that gets left over when you're done and you know, what's in there. You could use it in any fantasy you know, gaming context that you wanted to. You could easily just write this and pop it down and do a D&D campaign. Mm-hmm. But that was intentional. The tone of the place was intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had this 
that fever dream sense of, I just need to get these words out. But there was an intentionality to it at the same time. And marrying those two things together made this so much stronger than it otherwise would have been. It's by far my most successful game on itch, like without question. Um, as, uh, uh, Adam noted in uh, his his most recent episode, if you don't want to hear numbers, then uh, close your ears for uh, a second or two. But if I look at my at my analytics on itch, and I uh, well, so I this was part of the solo but alone uh, bundle as well. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. some of the numbers are a little bit skewed. Um, but downloads uh, eight hundred thirty five. Amazing. The next closest that was not part of some other giveaway or or similar uh, of my small games is Generations, uh, which is another solo journaling game. But it's 42. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Payments. 83 people have paid for you or the dungeon. The next mm-hmm. highest 14 for my lyric game. Draw a bath for your love. Um, it's wild. The disparity between mm-hmm. all of this, um, I've made you are the dungeon has made nearly a thousand dollars in, in revenue since I released it at the end of November of 2020. It's currently mm-hmm. April of 21 when we're recording this. The next closest is 110. Like it, it is far and away the most successful thing that I've done. It's, it's unbelievable. And so I'm, like part of me wanted to chase that formula of that kind of game. Right. And make, I had ideas that I may still do uh, for you are the tavern, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. To build a fantasy Mm -hmm. town around the, the, the tavern that always seems to be in the middle of town. I still make it a little bit creepy. I had the idea to do uh, one that I was going to call you are the palace of dreams, which would create a godly pantheon for Mm -hmm. a setting. Mm -hmm. I wanted I wanted to do uh, You Are the Golden Throne, which creates like a city and an empire. Mm-hmm. And then You Are the Caravan. And if you play rounds of all whatever five or six that I just listed off, you've made a campaign setting. Yep. And it's a really cool idea, except that I went when I went to start writing You Are the Tavern, I was like, uh, the formula is not working. I'm not, the juice wasn't there. Right. I, I would, I would have had to squeeze stone to get, to get it out. Yeah. And yeah. It, it wouldn't have been bad necessarily, <laughs> but I wasn't excited about it. Mm. So it started, I may go back and finish it. Like the moment of juice may come and mm-hmm. I'll be happy to dive back in if it does. But I, I think I would rather at this point in time, like, revise you or the dungeon to because right now it's eight and a half by 11. It's just single pieces of paper. I'd like to revise it down to five and a half by eight and a half, Mm -hmm. which is if you take an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and you fold it in half, it's that size. And to make a, a quick printed style and do a Kickstarter for it. I I was going to do a zine quest Kickstarter for it this last uh, zine quest back in February, but I've got another project um, that I think is more important uh, called paper arcade. Um, It's a small anthology of uh, four games all by black creators. And I've got a black editor and a black graphic designer. I'm only just doing the project. I'm not contributing to it. Mm -hmm. I did paper arcade back in, 2020 I think it was 
maybe it was 19, uh, which was a, another four game anthology. And with everything that happened in June of 20, I wanted to focus uh, on uplifting voices where I could. So that project is just kind of in the works because I'm not pressuring the designers to get their work done at any specific time. Like if I'm going to support people, I want to actually support them. And if their lives are chaotic because they're marginalized people existing in a world that hates them mm-hmm. and that makes it hard to write a game. Yeah, it does. I'm yeah. not going to, I'm not going to put yeah. extra pressure on you. So, um, as of this recording, there's like a, there's a soft deadline of if I get the paper arcade games from those creators in about a week or so, then I will be setting up that Kickstarter and it's going to go in May because I want to get it done before the baby comes. I'm having a, my, I'm not having, my partner is having a kid in June. So there's a lot of context for everything that I'm doing now. (laughs) Um, But if I don't get the games, then I'm going to take the Kickstarter I had set up for ZineQuest and I'm going to run that in May. Mm Mm-hmm and do a revised version of you are the dungeon with print copies because you know, in between the act of taking care of a child, I'm going to be bored. You Mm -hmm. know, when she's asleep, I'm not, there's not going to be anything to do so I can print and staple zines and put them in envelopes really easily. Mm -hmm. Um, and having the extra revenue one way or the other in advance of a baby arriving, not a bad thing. So, uh, so one way or the other, there's a Kickstarter probably coming in mid May. Uh, but I just don't know which one it's going to be yet. <laughs> uh, that's all amazing, amazing stuff. The, uh, the collaboration efforts that you've made for uh, individuals in the space of marginalized focus is very cool. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and to speak on the other you are um, entities of the you are dungeon franchise i think <laughs> yes, that franchise holy shit <laughs> yeah what i was gonna say is that i think it's a very like hackable concept and you know i don't want to say like it's an innovative concept by any means because i'm sure there are other like frameworks out there that help you build out a dungeon like there's the um what is it called the five room method or something like that that's mm-hmm. out there but I love the sense like you could switch the genre and have an equally usable system, right? Uh, It seems like based on the two games that I've read of your 16, uh, (laughs) that it seems like it's sort of framework focused in Mm -hmm. the sense that you're you're helping to build the box in which the players will explore, right? Uh, Especially when we think about solo games and stuff. That's 100% correct. I... When I run games, I do not like the authoritative GM stance of I am the arbiter of this world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and here is here is the reality as it exists. I'm going to give it to you and then only lightly respond to your input. I want my table to be involved creatively, mm-hmm. not just what what do their characters do, but what is the world like? Um I encountered a a method of sort of not setting building, but providing setting specificity and context Mm -hmm. Um, back in 20, would have been 2013, maybe even 2012. Uh, I'm not sure this person's designing games anymore, but it was, uh, if you've read Ironetta and seen the question tables that I do on that for building your starting town, it's that system, right? Mm -hmm. You, you roll on a category of questions, you roll then to get a specific question and you answer it absent any other context. Like you sit down at a convention table or virtually nowadays and someone asks you, 
you know, the Jarl of your Holdfast is decrepit and corrupt. Uh, what atrocities have they perpetrated and what are the residents of the Holdfast preparing to do about it? Right. That's mm-hmm. not an act. I just came up with that question off the cuff because it, I, I know how to do this now. But you as the player, I've just said, OK, this game is about uh, Ragnarok in the form of massive Dwarven destroyers and humanity's fighting back with big bone giant mechs. There's your there's your pitch. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all you know about the game. And then someone asks you that question. You might not know what a Jarl is. The word hold fast might need to be defined for you. Mm-hmm. But you think of a leader in a fantasy setting who's decrepit and corrupt. And you just start answering the question mm-hmm. and you, every group build brings their own version of a setting when they play it. Like my forgotten realms is not your forgotten realms is not somebody else's forgotten realms. What I want to encourage is for there to be like pillars of setting material that are always true, no matter whose table you sit down at. Like, yes, mm-hmm. there are always uh, bone bonded. There are always people who use runes of power. There are always warrior clans. These are the three pillars of what makes Iron Edda, Iron Edda, de- de- regardless of what version of it it is. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, how you answer those questions, how your group crafts in that space, that's up to you. It's your table. It's your, it's your story, right? Mm-hmm. So Iron Edda, War of Metal and Bone, and Accelerated have... Hold fast creation questions, but like I'm working on a game called Valkyries, which is an Ironetta game uh, now. It wasn't for a while, but it is now where you answer questions about events on your ship in like far future sci-fi Norse myth inspired stuff. And you depending on the crew members you have chosen to be on your ship, you get different questions and you get to describe what your ship is like because that's the the world you know that's your your traveling hold fast if you will mm-hmm. um with the i'm working on a space trucking game called long haul you depending on the part of the solar system you start in the sun earth mars jupiter whatever you have a list of npc names with no context just names a list of business or location names, no context, just names. And then the questions pair an NPC with a location and ask you a question about your history with that, with that mm-hmm. pairing of people. And the questions all shift. So there's six places and six people. The first question is one and one. Then the second question is two and two, three and three, so on and so forth. You go to the next category and it's one and two, then two and three. Mm-hmm. So if you get, the same person coming up in multiple questions. If you've got like four or five players, suddenly there's context about this NPC that you knew nothing about before that you get to build out. And your, uh, you know, um, Winslow Horvath, the third is this particular way in your game, whereas they may never come up in somebody else's game. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very roundabout way of saying that I like to give enough information for people to go on and then let them build their own context because there's going to be a thousand percent more buy-in and engagement on the part of the group if they get to do that than if I just say, well, the Forgotten Realms, uh, the world is called... Read my uh, world Bible, dude. (laughs) Yeah. The world is called Toril. The continent is Faerun. You're going to be in the city of Waterdeep. And great, that's fine, but it's all nonsense. It doesn't mean anything to you. Yeah, yeah. Right? If I say, here are three meaningful things. Now answer a question. Mm-hmm. You're piecing together stuff and making meaning for yourself. Not only that, but you are also adding uh, an enhanced... Hmm, 
cognitive cementing when you're the one who's getting to add the detail, right? When you have to listen 100%. to someone sort of like, you know, you started, you know, traditionally, you start off a D&D campaign, you get a 45-minute uh, intro of like, ah, and all the dragons across the land, Gvorthax and Kilathar, and uh, then you get some king names and then some countries that you'll never visit because no plan survives the players. Like, that stuff is not going to... They're going to ask you again, what's the name of the region we're in? What's the mm-hmm. tavern we're in? Instead, if it comes from player A and then player C at the same time, everyone else is like, ooh, that's very cool. Let's all write that down, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the other part of it is that I also include a very basic like map making component to all mm-hmm. these things. So imagine like a quiet year, right, where mm-hmm. you're answering questions and, and filling out a map. Every time you answer a question, you write something down on the map that re- represents your answer. So it's it's really basic stuff, but you get locations that you are invested in and that you know about. Mm-hmm. You know there are plot hooks attached to all of that, and it works super duper well like it's one of those things where when i demo ironetta at a convention whether it's war of metal and bone or accelerated because those are the only two versions that are out yet in a four-hour slot uh with accelerated especially it will take 60 to 90 minutes to do the hold fast questions and finish characters Mm-hmm. And if I tell people that up front, they, there tends to be a little resistance, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, we're, we're at a four-hour convention slot, and you're telling me that almost half the time is going to be taken up by this? And I go, yeah, go with it. <laughs> and then by the time we're finished with that, they are itching to play the story that they've created. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. suddenly they know the plot hooks. They know yeah. what this story is going to be about. We take a 10-minute break and we come back and we tell an amazing story together. Uh, I had, I tell this story almost every time I'm on a podcast and talking about Ironetta, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. Let's do it. Um, at Origins some years back, I had gone way too hard in the paint on a Thursday night. And <laughs> I had a 9 a.m. slot at Games on Demand. Mm-hmm. I was on four hours of sleep and hungover as, oh my God, it was amazingly bad. And I sat down at the table. There were four, four people I didn't know and two people that I knew. And the four people that I didn't know said, Hey, we have a couple friends who are going to be swinging by a little bit into the session. Is it okay if they just sort of hang out and watch? Because we're a group that used to play together in college. And the only time we get to meet up is at cons. I was like, yeah, that's fine. They can just sit and watch. When those two people showed up, there was like immediate chemistry. This like they obviously were a group of people that could interact together. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, bring in two more chairs. Everybody scooch up. We're just going to do this. Lay down your tokens. And I ran for eight people, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I told I told them they need I, I explained the situation. I said, this is the state I'm in. Uh, here's the game I want to give you. You all need to really bring it to the table for this to work. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic, right? A, a high, one of the high watermark sessions of that game. So Saturday night, the next day, I've got another slot of games on demand. I come in to get ready. And the person who's doing muster and like filling the tables says, Hey, I know that it said six on your card. Are you okay? If there's one extra person at the table and I look over at the table where they're pointing and the same six people <laughs> plus a buddy of mine, are sitting there. I said, we're going to be fine. 
it's, it's great. So I sat down. This is the amazing part. I get to the table and one of them says, Hey, can we keep going? Yeah. And I went, do, do you have the character sheets and like the hold fast map and everything? Cause I'd let them keep all that stuff. They said, hang on, ran to their hotel room. Cause it was adjacent to the con center back in 10 minutes with all the stuff we made, we asked a hold fast question and made a character for the newcomer. And then we kept playing the story from the day before. Like, you, 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 I mean, you can plan for things like that. Like there are con sessions where you, where you play three sessions on three days and it's the same people and you continue the story and you just have this one story for the weekend. But like to have that happen like spontaneously is wild. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, It it was amazing. And it's one of those things that lets me know that this, this idea of giving people real agency, Mm -hmm. not, not just for what their characters can do, but letting them have agency in the story and in the setting from a metafictional perspective, that's powerful and people love it. If you, give it to them in a way that allows them to do it confidently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It provides the framework. Yeah. There's, there's quite a lot to unpack there, especially when we consider like this stemming from the conversation of you are the dungeon. Right. I think mm-hmm. that there are, like you say, some powerful things. I believe it's, I haven't read it yet, but it keeps getting talked about on the show. Indie hack does hard and soft details or something. Maybe I'm confusing the game, but there's a game mechanic where it's hard and soft details where, mm-hmm. um, if the, player fails a role, then the arbiter gets to add a softer, hard detail depending on the on the role, and then if the player succeeds on the role, they're the ones that get to add the softer, hard detail. And I think there's something interesting for both You Are the Dungeon and for um, I'm sorry, I- Ironetta, is that correct? Yeah, Ironetta. Ironetta. Yep. Um, it is a matter of allowing like I've thought about this concept as well where I'm like okay I'm going to introduce an NPC and I'm going to give them a name and then I want everyone around the table to give me a detail about this person backstory what they look like whatever you want to add that's going to be added to this character right and I think it create it's all about all of this is an umbrella conversation for player buy-in right mm-hmm. I think games like like the Dungeon Master's Guide for D&D 5th edition you know we're going to compare it to the world's best role-playing game uh, <laughs> only role-playing game? I don't know. I don't know how they phrase it anymore. But no, it's a matter oh, of like... My, my games are the only role-playing games. This was established on the Brain Trust a while back. <laughs> the literal <laughs> only ones. Yes. Um, but it's this concept of like the 5th edition DMG teaches you to sort of read off exposition and present everything to the players. Like you create the platter, right? Mm-hmm. But you never ask the players for what foods they like or what they may be allergic to, what their diets include, right? And so, not to, I guess, food's a good allegory, but yeah. um, it's just this concept of letting everyone sort of have a say, and I think increasing that so far beyond like even the setting. I love the concept you talked about how establishing like pillars of truth for a setting, like if you're providing a setting for a book, I... When I think about games like 13th Age, when I think about games like mm-hmm. uh, like D&D, when I think about games like Numenera, I get a little overwhelmed because I get the sense that the book, even though it doesn't say it, it says run whatever game you like and include whatever details. But that's not like what's presented to me. There are these mm-hmm. huge 
sweeping maps with tons of locations that you have to pick from and there's no like it never feels like there's true room like you can add a dungeon you can put a monster there whatever but like it's asking you to use all of this at the same Mm -hmm. time always have it in concept and like i like this idea of a setting as like simple pillars like i think um uh Blades in the Dark sort of does this to a certain degree, maybe not the exact degree that I'm personally thinking of, but they present some like, you know, it's all about electroplasm and this is a ghost world and uh, we're in the Industrial Revolution and like that's sort of it. After that, run wild. Um, Mm -hmm. But I would be interested in like settings moving forward in design that are just like six to ten things of like, there's always a blood moon and the undead rise uh, every Halloween and like these sorts of like that's it after that add whatever you want and you can sort of create a box or framework for players and the GM if it is a GM game or even Mm -hmm. like this concept is actually probably more useful in a GM full slash GM less game right like having these frameworks (laughs) of put stuff in it it can be I (laughs) I, I'm biased I really like GMing and so Mm -hmm. I I like Same. games that have that role, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, I enjoy GMless stuff or GM full things like Fiasco is one of my seminal mm-hmm. games. Like it's it's one of those games that changes the way that you think about games if you have never experienced something like it before. But I also I like the role of, of playing the world effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really helps with my focus as a player. I have a very difficult time staying engaged when mm-hmm. I'm only responsible for what my character does. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think that conceptually, yes, that stuff can work really well in a, a shared creative responsibility. Um, I strap it onto GM experiences because I like to make the kinds of games that I want to play. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and also the the other thing, sort of a little bit earlier, I also like the concept that you are the dungeon considers the dungeon a character, right? I think sometimes mm-hmm. um, locales are treated as locales, but when we talk about like fiction writing and personification and all of these things that you use inside of of those prose, when you're trying to emulate an experience in the theater of the mind in an abstracted way to a player because you don't have the tangible thing in front of you. are not in the dungeon. You're not in the tavern. You're not in the wasteland, but you have to be able to say like the sort of emotions that this thing is giving off, not in terms of like how it's making the player feel or the character feel, but it's how it's presenting itself. It says, I, I am a barren wasteland and dare you dare you to walk mm-hmm. through me in all my dangers, right? Like it's speaking yeah. to you. So I think the idea for that, I, I never really traced this back before, but as you were breaking that down, it occurred to me sort of where I got it from. Um, most of my big design work, as I mentioned, is fate, right? Mm-hmm. It's the system that when it was presented to me, it just spoke to me, right? Mm-hmm. It's like for people who make uh, nothing but powered by the apocalypse hacks, because that, that, design language really worked for them. Mm-hmm. Fate is this blend of traditional type mechanics with these narrative chunks that, that have mechanical hooks on them. They're aspects, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, if you're not familiar, they're short descriptive phrases that make things true. Mm-hmm. And every character has 
five aspects, a high concept, a trouble, and then some undefined ones, depending on the type of fate game that you're playing. You then have skills or approaches that have ratings next to them. So an approach tells you how you do something. A skill tells you what you're doing. Games usually use one or the other. And that gives you your modifiers to add to your die roll, so on and so forth. But the idea in fate, there's, there is an idea in fate called the fate fractal, mm-hmm. where anything in the game can be described in the same way as a character. Mm-hmm. So it is an automatic embodying of a thing. So if you say this place is really important and I need the environment to matter here, right? Then you give the environment some aspects. It's high concept is, um, massively arid desert waste, right? It's trouble is, uh, occasional drowning thunderstorms. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, give it another aspect of, uh, deadly predators abound. You give it another aspect of occasional pockets of solace, meaning oasises and things like that. And you give it a, a fifth aspect of say, um, canyons and cliffs, uh, watch your step. You know, those are all things that are now true about this space. Mm-hmm. And then you give it skills and you don't have to make them the regular skills that, Every, everything else had, maybe you give it arid plus four, you give it uh, thunderstorms plus three. Mm-hmm. And as your party is going through that space, when you need an environmental interaction, you look at those aspects and you go, oh, sweet, I can totally have a thunderstorm roll through here because that's what happens here. And mm-hmm. then you roll mm-hmm. thunderstorms plus three, you get a rating they have to, to go against. So everything is a character. And, and you can break that down to your sword can be the same thing. The rock on the ground, if it's an important enough rock, you can describe it in the same mechanical ways. And so the idea of making the dungeon the thing that you are playing, right? The, the being you are embodying for a session of, of you are the dungeon is it just really speaks to me in the same sort of way, because I think that having reason again the the specific setting things right you are the dungeon you are an evil presence you exist to corrupt and subvert adventurers boom that's what you need to know uh-huh. now bring now bring on the adventurers right there's some procedural stuff of questions to answer and you know uh tarot cards to draw and some dice to roll but they're really simple things to figure out right it, it's it's all it's all like the one thing when the adventurers come it's all on a page Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Who are my adventurers? Oh, here's a table of adventurers. I got the the page of cups. Oh, that douchebag. Great. You know, you know exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know exactly who's going to be coming into the dungeon. And then the idea is to spark creativity. So say you pull a character who is a faded herbalist. You know, I, again, used... Uh, adjective profession. Adjective profession. That's what all of the, the characters are. So if you... If your framework for playing fantasy games is D&D, then you think about what a faded herbalist might be in your D&D setting, and you suddenly can apply more stuff. So I tell you to give them a name, but you could write a whole paragraph about this person, right? Mm-hmm. It's up to you. And there, I've seen people do real basic stuff when they play it, and I've seen people basically write novels of content about what this is in the space, and it's I'm like, hell yes, that's exactly right use this however it works for you. The basics of it are easily digestible, goes down real smooth to read it. And you then have something that you can make a a horrible dungeon with. Now, if you don't want to make a horrible dungeon, you know, 
then probably don't play this game. But yeah. if if you and part of the reason I think it was so successful is it hooks into the trad gamer mm-hmm. who only knows D and D or Pathfinder and gives them a thought exercise yeah. to do where they, I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking to turn them into, you know, a, a, a grimy indie nerd. Uh, but if they suddenly start thinking about things a little bit differently mm-hmm. and they go, okay, well how could I apply this to the thing that I do? And they get a little bit more interactivity. Things are a little less static. They're a little less beholden to the canon of the setting. When you were talking about how big campaign settings feel like binding to you, mm-hmm. 100%. It took me so long to feel like I could mess with what was true yeah. in Forgotten Realms that I just didn't want to play in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Or so, find out what was true in the first place, right? Because it doesn't present its truths up front, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, if you change one thing, what are the ripple effects going to be? Like, how is this going to affect what Kelvin Blackstaff is going to be doing? Yeah. I don't want to think about that. I the don't water care. The elite will be in an uproar. Exactly. You know, and and if that's the kind of game you like to play, sure, that's great. I'm not going to I'm not going to shit on you for that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work so well for me. Right. Like when my group and I did Waterdeep Dragon Heist, one, I had to change so much stuff about how that adventure was structured because there's a lot of really good stuff in there, but boy, the structure of the adventure was wonky as anything. Mm-hmm. But because it's my group, there's a point, spoilers for Waterdeep Dragon Heist and now two-year-old adventure from Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a point in time where you get a tavern. You are given, as, mm-hmm. part, as a plot point, you're given a tavern. It's like a base of operations. My group went all in on that, and half the game was them running the tavern. Yeah, it became Not, the home and garden network. You know what fa- I mean? Like it, it was fantastic, <laughs> but like I had to make sure that I was comfortable enough using the places around the city mm-hmm. as stepping off points and names a lot like I described for long haul. Like it's just a name. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some details about it that the book gives me, or maybe I can find them from another another source. But I was not that worried about canonically what those things were. This was our game. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I definitely think there's something to be said about... Actually, a, a family member of mine is getting ready to run Dragon Heist. And some of the things that... He's already in a sense of like trying to make more a gonzo adventure. And I was like, okay... One thing you might want to consider is just remove the gold conversation. Like, <laughs> I don't think it matters really to any form of the plot. And so I was like, you could do like a, a gang turf war, right? The Castellanters don't love that Jarlaxle is there and Jarlaxle wants to remove Xanathar and Xanathar needs to get rid of Manchun. Uh, or that, you, yeah. Or you could even do like uh, a Waterdeep Urban Legends game if you want to go full Gonzo. Like take Dungeon of the Mad Mage and just put it in water deep. Just take all of those dungeons and just put them on the surface level. You don't have to go into Undermountain to do all that. <laughs> just just go in and call it like, yeah, I hear uh, down in Blue Alley there's this really weird crystal that like pops up and then bada bing bada boom, you got a dungeon, right? Yeah, exactly. No, it's there there's a there's actually a resource, there's a website, I can't even remember which one it was now, that reworked the entire adventure. So okay. all the factions were involved, no matter mm-hmm. what season you started in, and that yeah. was of immense help. Yeah. Because it made things feel interconnected and real. Yes. If, yeah. if there's just one faction after this after the, the gold, it, it all falls a little bit flat. There's not enough 
that and, and how you go from one point and another in those individual season arcs don't make any sense. And then there's no connection to the headquarters. What the fuck presented. is Xanathar doing the entire time Jalaxel's in the city? What yeah. do you mean? Exactly. So in in our game, which I'm not sure we, we did an actual play podcast of it. And not, mm-hmm. for time reason, I had to stop editing it and we haven't played that particular game in a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. But. I'm not sure if this bit got to the audio or not, but there is a, you know, the, the book gives you all of these layer descriptions, right? Mm-hmm. For all, for all four of the factions. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of really good information in each of them. And so they got to the point where they were going to infiltrate the Xanathar's layer and try and get, because the, the way the restructuring worked is that all, all of the different factions have, uh, a piece of the eye that goes in the stone of galore that mm. like helps you find out where the gold is. Mm-hmm. So you have to go and get the eye. Great. You have a reason to go to the headquarters. Now it's a, it's a great little setup. That's great. Yeah. In the actual printed material, there's a room in Xanathar's lair that has, there's like a, an alchemist who's trying to like plot against the Xanathar and there's like barrels of fire oil, like mm-hmm. massively explode. It's like 20 barrels or something. Mm. And, my group literally moved those barrels out to the main chamber, lit the whole thing on fire and blew up the Xanathar. Like <laughs> I believe I, it. They, they, they barely survived themselves, but they nuked the Xanathar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, that's basically where we left off was, okay, now there's a massive power vacuum in Undermountain. Mm-hmm. Um, They've got a deal with Jarlaxle to find the gold. They have a deal with one of the leaders of the city, like the the, the unmasked mage oh, of the yeah, council, yeah, whatever. Uh, 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 fucking Marvin. That's not his name. But sure. No, her yeah. her name's definitely Marvin. She's Marvin from now on. <laughs> um, but they had deals with both of them to find the gold and like found a loophole where those deals weren't mutually exclusive. Like so, things were getting really. I was feeling the weight of the narrative, but it's a narrative mm. we built together. It wasn't mm-hmm. like anything that the setting was telling us we had to account for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Castellaners got sacrificed to their demon lord because half their gold was gone. Like yeah. they, they, they did. They, they were doing all the right stuff. Um, I don't even remember why we got onto this tangent about Dragon Heist. <laughs> it's <laughs> suffice it to say, you need to be like. There's a lot of good information in published campaign settings, and there's a lot that you can pull from. But if I ever write a big setting, I'm going to set it up in such a way that there are just things that are true and questions to engage with mm-hmm. to bypass that entire process of being beholden to canonicity. Yeah, there's reduce a, there, the there, file there's size. A, there's a new word for you, canonicity. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Look with the file size. Because otherwise, it's like scrolling through a PDF that's not optimized, <laughs> right? You 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 start. You're like, oh, that's beautiful, great. The cover looks great, and you start scrolling down, and it goes, yeah. and then half the table of contents loads, and you're like, okay. You scroll again, and then the other half of the table of contents loads. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, wow, this is really frustrating to read. What if I just jump to page 37 and see what's on it? 37, enter. Okay. There's page 37. Wow, that's really cool. I wonder what that means. Click on a link, but <laughs> right, it yeah. freezes again. Just because there's there's literal information overload. So mm-hmm. I want to get rid of that bottleneck. Yeah, exactly. 
I think it's uh, I think that's a really cool concept. Reduce the file, like speaking specifically to settings and tying in you are the dungeon. Mm-hmm. Creating these truths reduces the file size of like you know like I mentioned earlier. New like it'd be so much easier to feel what I could play with if they said okay here are mm, you know this may not be perfect for every game I think that's important there's a grain of salt with artistic mm-hmm. integrity and everything like that but uh, you know give me six things that cannot change about the setting period make them super obvious to me in fact let them each be their own paragraph and just tell me outright like um, heart the city beneath sort of does this uh, well they say like mm-hmm. the heart can be anything but it is a thing deep within the bottom of this place uh everyone here is a little crazy and that's really about it after that hog wild let it let your elder tour rip dude yeah exactly and there there's a, a term in uh education called scaffolding right mm, yeah where yeah. Mm-hmm. where you want to work with the student you're trying to teach hands-on enough to get them to the point where they can work comfortably until they reach another point where they need help again. And Mm -hmm. then you build them up and you prepare them for the next phase and you just keep doing that. And I feel like setups like that where you get enough basic information to, to go on Right. This is why I, I, I think that, that GMs can serve a very valuable role because they tend to invest more time in the nuts and bolts of mm-hmm. both system and setting. Tend to, not always, but tend to. That a player goes, okay, cool. So I'm going to start answering this question. Wait, is this thing true in this world? And the GM consults their internal Rolodex of either personal desire or knowledge they have yeah. and goes, yeah, it's totally true. Roll on. And then the player feels confident again. Or the GM goes, well, it's sort of true in this world. Here's how it is. And the player goes, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. There's a conversation there and, and give and take. And you are bouncing ideas back and forth and building something together. Yeah. Um, now, this can happen in GM full games as well, but there needs to be a lot more parity in terms of uh, knowledge and execution on mm-hmm. everyone's part, which can be a little more cognitive load than some people want. Yeah. Some people uh, want, you know, the Orville Redenbacher buttered popcorn version of of playing a game where they just get to sit down and take handfuls of, of delicious things, mm-hmm. you know, uh, not do their own mise en place and then... Uh, <laughs> you know, prep a meal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, amazing. There is a ton of stuff to come for the next episode of this. Cause this is going to be another two parter. Tracy had a lot of information. So you get to hear about the trends and tips that Tracy has and, You'll want to be there for the next episode because it is going to be really mind-opening for people who want to make game design, game making uh, their future endeavors of livelihood. So stay tuned to the podcast show and you will get to see that next time. Uh, In the meantime, listen to the really cool beat that makes up this show. Bye, everyone.